I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Richard Wilson. He directs Stop Funding Hate, based uh, across the pond in London. Um, Stop Hate for Profit is a movement that he and colleagues at Sleeping Giants in America and around the world have undertaken. They think that there is an unprecedented opportunity to encourage Facebook specifically to address hate and misinformation on its platform. Uh, Welcome, Richard. Good afternoon, and thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure, and you and I have been dialoguing for some months about your work. Um, Let me ask you just directly to begin with, is Stop Funding Hate, your organization, specifically focused on Facebook exclusively right now? Um, we're heavily uh, focusing on Facebook, but it's not the only um, issue that we're focusing on. Essentially, we now um, will highlight examples of hate speech wherever we think we can have an impact. Um, it's just that at the moment, with so much going on with Facebook, we're, we're sort of doing our best to support the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, uh, given that it's, it's really going so well right now. It is going well. And yet, Richard, during this pandemic, Zuckerberg and co. at Facebook have made record profits. I mean, many more billions than prior to the pandemic. How do you address that disconnect and ensure that people who want to join your campaign are not dissuaded by the fact that Facebook is still increasingly profitable during this pandemic, even when these social inequities and the crisis of hate on the platform have been brought to people's attention? Well, Facebook gets um, 98% of its revenue, um, possibly more, from advertising. So mathematically, if enough advertisers get on board um, and speak out and demand that Facebook does more to address hate speech, then um, there comes a point at which just in business terms, Facebook will have to take it more seriously than they have. Um, The challenge for every organization in the world that's concerned about hate and hate speech and the things that lead from it up to and including genocide is how can we most effectively organize together to get enough brands on board to reach that critical mass? And how close are you to that critical mass right now? I think we're closer than we've ever been. Um, So obviously in the US through the work that the amazing coalition have done with ADL and Color of Change and Sleeping Giants and uh, NAACP, they've they've managed to get to a point where Coca-Cola, for example, has caused its advertising on Facebook. Um, We've never seen that kind of scale of, of take up from companies. And then here in the UK, we've had organizations ranging from um, the the Imperial War Museum, uh, not necessarily known for their activism. We've had universities getting on board. Uh, We've had charities like WaterAid and Citizens UK. So we've never seen so many organizations getting behind an ethical advertising campaign as we're seeing this month. So you have mainstream corporate giants coming aboard understanding the stakes here. And when you talk about a coalition that will, that will endure in changing the culture of Facebook, 
will that mean that these companies go to the table with Facebook to try to establish better standards to enforce on their platform? Or does that mean an outright withdrawal in, in how you see the goal, ultimately the, the benchmark for your success? Is it shutting down advertising on Facebook or is it, is it enforcing standards so that those advertisers can return to Facebook? I think it's definitely the latter. I mean, we've seen for ourselves how powerful Facebook can be uh, as an organizing tool for campaigning organizations. Obviously, we know the advertisers are there in the first place because it's a very effective tool for advertising. So the outcome that I think everybody would like to see would be um, a Facebook that did the things that need doing to get to the bottom of the hate speech problem and the misinformation problem so that advertisers can feel comfortable and confident um, staying on the platform. In the most recent meeting with um, black civil rights leaders in the United States, they came away with um, feeling that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook were still not taking seriously the issue. And this was even after those major transnational corporations withdrew their advertising dollars for a month or canceled their ad buys completely. So where do things stand now? You have those civil rights leaders indicating Zuckerberg is not taking it seriously. Um, you know, wh where does that leave us? I think it's obviously uh, disappointing to many people that, that there hasn't been more progress. Um, the one thing I would say is that um, if you look back over the last sort of two years, there have been changes that Facebook has made. Um, so I think it's, it's reasonable to say that advertiser pressure um, can help. Um, and I think the, you know, the, the, the kind of common sense answer is really, you know, we've, we've built collectively, we've, we've got this, we've got this um, larger than ever global alliance of organizations concerned about this. Um, if we haven't seen the changes that need to happen by the end of July, which I, I suspect is likely, then um, there's going to have to be a big conversation with civil society groups all over the world about um, potentially something like this happening again in a few months' time. So periodic updates from the community that is lobbying Facebook in that interaction with executives and Zuckerberg. One thing that's been notable that we've covered on the podcast is that Facebook seems to be taking more seriously, as do some of the other social platforms, the complaints about illiteracy when it comes to the pandemic and scientific information and ensuring integrity when it comes to information about masks and the response to yeah. the pandemic. Do you agree with that assessment that there is a more heightened concern or alarm about scientific disinformation, misinformation, or what we should call anti-science on the platform than, than racism and countering racism on the platform? Um, it's, it's hard to make an objective assessment, um, but it does feel that they have gone further and, and um, treated the issue with greater urgency 
around coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, and and, and I, I guess it, it would be amazing in a way, given how blatant and clear the connection is between the misinformation you're seeing one week and the and the kind of rises in cases that you're seeing very, very soon after. It, it, it would be, I think it would be difficult to fudge this. But that said, we have continued to hear concerns from multiple different groups that they are still seeing uh, COVID-19 misinformation on Facebook. Um, so there's always that balance between, it's, you know, it's important that they are taking steps, but if the fundamental problem isn't being solved by those steps, then they, they obviously need to do more. And how can you compare the international outreach to Facebook and what folks in the UK see on the Facebook platform compared to what folks in the United States see? And in that effort to lobby from the EU or from Europe, um, you know, are you aware of differences based on antitrust provisions and other regulations enforced in Europe. Um, and, and has that made the efforts towards reform more successful than from the American position? What we have seen, um, say, over the last year is that a number of the community groups that we speak to uh, for example, we have a great um, partnership with a, an organization called Tal Mama who work on anti-Muslim um, hate. A lot of those organizations have a relationship with Facebook where they are able to sometimes get things taken down uh, reasonably quickly, um, which is an improvement on where things were. So there has been there has been positive change in the right direction in the UK context. Um, and I think that's probably to do with a range of factors. Certainly a number of governments in Europe are talking more and more seriously about regulation. Um, and I think one thing that seems significant is that if the European Union as a whole was to um, collectively um, bring in directives to, to, to sort of really address these issues and, and strengthen the regulation on Facebook, then... Um, it's conceivable that, that, you know, an entity the size of the EU could have um, enough of a clout that, that Facebook would, would take it seriously. Um, and there certainly does seem to be a willingness from um, what I'm hearing at the EU level to really um, get, get involved in this and take serious action now. And I suspect that that is a slightly different situation than the context in the U.S., it, it is a different situation, and I wonder if, in your estimation, the corporate withdrawal of ad buys has to work in tandem with new regulatory forces. Um, and if you don't have the corporate proactive measures, as you have from some major international companies, and if you don't have that consistency, then it seems implausible that in the United States, for example, we will see any kind of major movement on the part of elected officials to understand that, that uh, corporations are not incompatible with wanting that regulation. And I wonder 
with respect to the politics of this, mm. how important is it that legislators in the UK, for instance, take public positions on this? And is it at all related in your mind to some of the, the shock that came as a result of the Cambridge Analytica scandal in terms of the lack of accountability at Facebook? I definitely think that the um, aftershocks from the Cambridge Analytica scandal have um, pushed the issue up the agenda in the UK. Um, and we have certainly heard legislators talking much more about this problem. Um, and I know that there is a discussion happening in the UK about, about a piece of legislation called the Online Harms Bill, um, which is actively um, being developed. Um, there was a, 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 actually a report out from a UK parliamentary committee just a couple of weeks ago that was like nothing I'd ever seen. And that they actually talked about um, the kinds of problems we're seeing on, on platforms like Facebook as being a, an existential threat to UK democracy, <laughs> um, which is language that I've, I don't think I've ever heard in my life uh, in the context of, of you know, technology. So it feels like in the last couple of years, a lot of policymakers have really woken up to this in a much bigger way than they, they were before. And what do you think is the most practical thing people can do besides delete their account or maybe in lieu of deleting their account when it comes to limiting their exposure to the corrupt and hateful culture at Facebook and doing whatever they can do with their individual footprint to pressure Facebook to do the right thing? I think the real power that we have right now is, is our power as consumers. And, um, you know, Stop Funding Hate is encouraging um, everyone to talk to your bank, talk to your phone company, talk to the companies that you shop with and tell them that this matters to you and tell them why it matters to you. Because so many people we hear from have been directly impacted by hate speech online. So that's a very powerful message to a company to be hearing that, you know, an issue that they've somehow got accidentally mixed up in is actually directly harming their customers. So it's really important that companies hear from their customers about this. And I think you're right that the, um, the, the pressure has to come from every direction. The more big corporations come on board and also smaller companies as well, because Facebook gets a lot of its income from smaller companies too. So the more companies come on board and speak out, the more that will shift the whole public discourse um, and, and make this a thing that stays on the agenda. And then ultimately, I suspect that will help build momentum for policy change as well. And, you know, from the individual perspective, would you suggest people delete their accounts or suggest that in doing business, they merely acknowledge at every opportunity that, it's a functional necessity in marketing anything to society today to be on Facebook. For instance, Sleeping Giants and others, you know, Stop Funding Hate, um, have a social media footprint. Um, how do you manage that so that you don't give folks the wrong 
suggestion that everything is okay. You know, I think that you and Matt and others are on record saying, you know, this is just the reality of modern day communications that, that we can't withdraw our own presence on these platforms in order to influence them. We have to be on them. Um, but there is still that disconnect in, in being on a platform that is degrading discourse and, you know, whether you are further exacerbating this vicious cycle. I just wonder how you think about that. I, I respect the people who've decided to delete Facebook and I can see the arguments that they've been making, but I think the reality is a lot of people who are really concerned about the problems on Facebook are not yet ready to delete Facebook. I've heard from people who've got family around the world and, and, you know, it, for all sorts of personal reasons, it can be difficult for people to, to get off the platform. And the way I sometimes think about it is if you are in a job and you don't like the paying conditions and you don't like certain aspects of how uh, your employer is acting, one option absolutely is just to quit the job and leave. But another option might be to get together with your coworkers, organize together, form a uh, a collective um, group, um, get involved in a trade union perhaps, and collectively take your concerns to your employer and see if you can negotiate. And I think where a lot of organizations are at the moment with Facebook is that they're, they're not yet ready to just give up and throw in the towel, but they do want to look at how they can organize together as a collective to negotiate on equal terms with the company to to get them to change their policies and practices. And I think the employment model is is quite a useful one for me, at least, in in making sense of that. And we've talked a lot about Facebook, but what about the other social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, which is under the umbrella of Facebook? Mm. Um, And and of course, there there are many others, but have you been concerned with the rise of hate specifically on other platforms as well? And how effective has your pressure camp campaign been on other platforms? We've seen horrific stuff on Twitter in the past. Um, actual Nazi propaganda, really extreme anti-Semitic content, particularly um, among a range of other problems. Um, one thing that's very striking on Twitter is that we've seen a lot less of that kind of content ourselves um, over the last year. So it does feel like actually Twitter has has taken some big steps forward. Um, and I, I think all of the platforms there are definitely still problems. But at the moment, we are less worried about Twitter than we were. And we're certainly less worried about Twitter than we are about Facebook. And... You know, there is this subculture on most platforms, but specifically YouTube. Um, if you find yourself ever in comments on mm-hmm. YouTube, you know, the, the bulk of, of comments, if not videos spun in the algorithm, um, have been hateful or disinformational. Um, so... YouTube seems to be one that that kind of uh, escapes us in conversation around social. We know that, you know, the the 
subculture of hate exists in a lot of open source platforms that are not as mainstream as Facebook and Twitter, but YouTube seems to have um, had to do damage control, but not a lot of pressure has been on YouTube to make changes that are just as necessary, I think, as changes are on Facebook. YouTube is an interesting one because they were certainly in the UK, one of the first sort of big platforms to get put in the spotlight. Um, I think it was two or three years ago when the Times newspaper in London found a whole load of advertisers uh, alongside um, ISIS videos and really blatant extreme um, propaganda. Um, And I think that triggered an advertiser withdrawal, not quite on the scale that we're seeing now on Facebook, but it was a significant one. And then there were changes at YouTube. So um, I think it is true that there are ongoing issues at YouTube, but I think they also um, managed to convince the world that they'd acted quickly and and made significant changes. Um, and, and, and certainly the problems we've seen more recently have been less obvious than, than they were before on, on YouTube. Um, I think the, the, the reality is that all of the platforms um, suffer from some of the same structural problems in the sense that um, effective moderation is expensive and uh, unfortunately polarizing inflammatory content um, is is an effective way of, of getting attention so there's I think there's always going to be a, a balancing act there um, and and I think I, I have heard concerns raised particularly about YouTube as well and in, in, in the context of issues that maybe aren't discussed so much in the European and the US media. So hate in India, for example, um, appears to be a a massive, massive concern to many civil society groups in India and and internationally looking at India. But um, I think possibly because it hasn't been such a headline issue on YouTube, it's maybe not got the attention at YouTube that um, it, it, it really needs. That makes sense. As a final question, I just want to get you to reflect on this big picture, Richard, which is the fact that, you know, that when people say about social media, the inmates started running the asylum, you can choose your figure of speech and and the way that you want to conceive of the social media problem. But the inmates were once relegated to those sub threads and um, web 1.0, as, as it existed, or even Web 2.0, uh, certainly gave people freedom of expression to uh, share their hate with like-minded haters in forums that were closed to the public or that you specifically had to seek out in order to uh, further your hate in an, in, in an online format or forum, um, you know, chat rooms, um, were a major component of that. But at some point, the, the, the dominant um, comment section and sort of the democratization of that process transferred all the power from the uh, negative commenters, often you know, racist, misogynistic 
xenophobic, hateful commenters and gave them the power within the platforms, even if they were not representing a majority of volume, meaning that they were the majority of users, they asserted dominant control. I just um, wanted you to reflect on that to close because that, I don't know if you see the devolution of social that way, but that's how I see it. And I think it would be helpful to get your perspective on it. That's an interesting question. I, I don't think I would quite see it that way because um, obviously the, the rhetoric of companies like Facebook is all about democratization of knowledge and information. Uh, but, but the point of Facebook is that they've never just mutually allowed comments to surface. They've, they've brought in those algorithms that amplify certain sorts of commentary and don't amplify others. So it's not simply that this stuff has just organically emerged. It's been actively amplified by systems that have been deliberately designed <laughs> and controlled. So um, even if the control of those processes isn't as obvious as it would be if a newspaper editor literally signed off on a, a hateful article, um, I don't think it's true that um, the power relationship there does necessarily lie with the users, if that makes sense. Because it's not the users that, that are in control of the algorithms which are controlling so much of what people see. No, that, that makes sense. I, I just wonder, you know, that how relevant advertising was to opening the Pandora's box of enabling mm. the, the hatefulness to run rampant on the platform. It, Mm -hmm. It didn't have to be that way. And at a certain it, point, it, yeah, right. I mean, at a certain point, the hijacking of the content was people who had been on the margins and rightfully on the margins, anti-vaxxers in the anti-science illiteracy, prof, profiteering on that illiteracy. And then of course the, the hate groups that have emerged, but you know, opening advertising on Facebook didn't necessarily have to result in the takeover of content to proliferate as much hate as, as there is empathy or, you know, just impartial news. That's where we are. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, I encourage you all to join Richard Wilson's work. Thank you so much for having me on.